Thank you, everyone, for coming to this, the fourth plenary of the 2016 Gathering of the American Academy of Religion. Uh, just to remind you all the theme that the president gets to choose, one of the great things about being president is the theme of revolutionary love. And it would be impossible for us to engage that theme in San Antonio without taking account of where we are, uh, the place that we have gathered, and the, the many ways in which uh, this place and Texas um, is at the center of so many of the political and social issues we've been discussing. Uh, so there could be no better person, quite literally, in the United States uh, to speak to us from this place in San Antonio uh, than uh, the Secretary of Housing and Human Development, Julian Castro. Um, he is the former mayor of San Antonio, so he built this um, conference center. So if you have any complaints about how long it takes to get from one room to the other, you can tell him. <laughs> um, but today he's not speaking to us as uh, Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, he's speaking to us as Julian Castro about his own experiences about San Antonio and about this very important topic, religion and revolutionary love. I'm very happy to introduce to you Michelle Gonzalez, who is Professor of Religious Studies and Assistant Provost for Undergraduate Education um, she at University of Miami. Uh, she received her PhD in systematic theology at the graduate GTU in Berkeley. Um, her research and teaching interests include Latino, uh, Latin American, and feminist theologies, as well as interdisciplinary work in Afro-Caribbean studies. Um, she is the author of many books. Um, uh, the most interesting, most recent one, which I enjoyed, is called Shopping. Uh, Christian Explorations of Daily Living. So um, I'm very happy that Michelle is here to introduce our speaker. Thank you, Michelle. Got two minutes left to say good morning. Secretary Julian Castro was born along with his twin brother in San Antonio, where his family has lived since the 1920s. Secretary Castro received a BA from Stanford University in 1996 and a JD from Harvard Law School in 2000. Upon his graduation from law school, Secretary Castro ran for a seat on the San Antonio City Council and won, making history as the youngest councilman in the city's history. He served for several years and then ran for mayor in 2009, becoming the fifth Hispanic mayor in San Antonio's history. During his tenure, he became known as a national leader in urban development. Under Secretary Castro's leadership in 2010, the city launched the Decade of Downtown, an initiative to spark investment in San Antonio's center city and older neighborhoods. It generated a list of goals created by the people of San Antonio based on their collective vision for San Antonio in the year 2020. It then generated a nonprofit organization named SA2020, tasked with turning that vision into reality. Secretary Castro also established Cafe College in 2010, offering college guidance to San Antonio area students. In 2012, he led a voter referendum to expand pre-kindergarten education. 
Secretary Castro delivered the keynote address at the Democratic National Convention in Charlotte, North Carolina in 2012. He was sworn in as the 16th Secretary of the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development in 2014. In this role, Castro uses a performance-driven approach to achieve the department's mission of expanding opportunity for all Americans. Now a little bit about familia. He and his wife, Erica, have a daughter, Karina, and a son, Christian. Secretary Castro's grandmother, Vivian Castro, came from Mexico as an orphan, never made it past the fourth grade, but taught herself to read and write in Spanish and English. His mother, Rosie Castro, was a community organizer in San Antonio during the Chicano movement in the 1960s and 70s, chairing the county chapter of La Raza Unida. In his speech at the 2012 Democratic National Convention, Castro said, and I quote, my grandmother spent her whole life working as a maid, a cook, and a babysitter, barely scraping by, but still working hard to give my mother, her only child, a chance in life so that my mother could give my brother and me an even better one. My grandmother never owned a house. She cleaned other people's homes so she could afford to rent her own. But she saw her daughter become the first in her family to graduate from college. And my mother fought hard for civil rights so that instead of a mop, I could hold this microphone." End quote. With this speech, he put the experiences of millions of Latinos and Latinas, their mothers, fathers, abuelas, and abuelos on the national stage. Secretary Castro has been called a national leader for Latinos and Latinas, a title he deflects, reminding us that we are all challenged to be leaders. While I agree with him, in part, I also want to recognize the importance of his leadership and presence in US politics. As a mother of two Latino boys, I am constantly and sadly reminded that it is rare for them to see national leaders that look like them. On behalf of the American Academy of Religion, I would like to welcome you and thank you for being with us today. We are honored to have you in our midst. Thank you so much. Well, good afternoon. First of all, thank you so much, uh, Provost Maldonado, for your kind words and for your own leadership and for all of your success. Congratulations on that. Uh, and to Reverend Dr. Serene Jones, uh, my congratulations on a great tenure and on helping to organize a very fine conference here in San Antonio. Uh, I apologize, I, I apologized uh, to them for being a little bit late. Uh, it's true that this convention center expansion that y'all are sitting in started under my watch as mayor, but it was actually finished afterward. And so this is the first time that I've actually been in this part of the convention center. And I got a little bit lost getting here. <laughs> Some mayor I am. Uh, I also want to commend uh, Jack Fitzmeyer and all of the staff. Um, let's give them a round of applause for their good work. Thank you for mentioning my brother as well. I always feel when I get in front of a room that I have to make sure folks know that I'm Julian, not Joaquin. 
my brother Joaquin is the congressman for the 20th Congressional District, which covers most of San Antonio. And uh, I understand that he had the opportunity the other day to address a luncheon or dinner of a Hispanic theological group. So uh, if you all had the, ch the chance to see my brother, uh, my brother likes to go around telling people that the way to tell us apart is that even though we're twins, I'm a minute uglier than he is. <laughs> and these days I go around telling people that the way to tell us apart is that we both live uh, in Washington, D.C., but Joaquin is in Congress, so I'm the only one who actually works in Washington, D.C. <laughs> I think I'm getting the better of the argument these days. So I can't help myself. I used to be mayor of San Antonio. This is the city that I was born in and grew up in and chose to come back to. Uh, bienvenidos a San Antonio. Welcome to San Antonio. Welcome to one of the fastest growing cities in the United States and one of its most dynamic uh, place that is culturally rich. And I hope that you've had the opportunity to go and enjoy some of the city. I'm sure for many of y'all, this is not the first time that you've been to San Antonio. But for those of you who are here for the first time, I hope that you've had a wonderful time and had a chance to get a margarita on the Riverwalk. Uh, be careful, the Riverwalk has no rails, so don't drink too many. This is a very special community, and it's special for me to be here for different reasons. Uh, you know, this city, this community was the entire reason that I decided to devote myself to public service. As Provost Maldonado mentioned, my family and I grew up here. My brother Joaquin and I were raised uh, by, by my mother and my grandmother. My grandmother had come from Mexico when she was about six or seven years old in 1922 uh, with her younger sister because their parents passed away. And the nearest relatives that would take them in lived here. So they came through Eagle Pass, Texas and ended up on the west side of the city. My mother, my grandmother raised my mother as a single parent uh, after she uh, had dropped out in elementary school and worked as a maid, a cook, and a babysitter. And my mother became the first in her family to graduate from high school and then go on to college. And uh, she got active in the old Chicano movement of the late 1960s and early 70s and ran for city council when she was only 23 years old. Uh, at a time when very few women and very few Hispanics got elected. There were no single member districts in San Antonio or many other cities at that time. Uh, so she didn't win, uh, but my brother and I grew up uh, in a household where we were always getting dragged to speeches and rallies. And I remember a particular three and a half hour long meeting at the library one day where the adults were talking about, I don't know what, if you had asked me when I was 15 years old if I ever wanted to go into politics, I would have said no. Because that stuff is not fun when you're 9 or 10 or 11 years old. But I first got interested in getting into public service when I went away from San Antonio. My brother and I left in 1992 after we graduated from high school to Stanford. And yeah, see we have some cardinal in the room. Uh, and when I got to Stanford, it was the first time that I could see my community with the eyes of an outsider. And there were some things I saw that made me happy, that were good. For instance, that San Antonio has always been a place where people of different backgrounds 
different faiths, different walks of life, have rolled up their sleeves and have generally gotten along and have created a very special community that is one of the most prosperous and one of the most challenged in the nation. Uh, it's a culturally rich place. It's the kind of place, I like to say, where if two people pass each other on the street downtown, they still look each other in the eye. In other words, there's still a sense of connection between people. And at Easter and around Christmas, one of the busiest places in the city is a cemetery. People going and putting flowers and baskets and mementos at the headstone of their loved ones because of the deep Catholic and other respect for elders. At the same time, I could see that in the Bay Area, there was a community that was much better educated, that had higher income levels, that was more ready for the future, ready to innovate, a sense of entrepreneurialism, a sense of impacting the direction of the nation in the 21st century. And my decision to go into public service was a result of asking the question of how could you combine the best of those two worlds? How could you create a city that was both culturally rich and a place of great character, the kind of place you'd love to raise a family, where there's still a sense of community, and at the same time, a place that was well-educated and had good jobs and was ready for the future, innovative in this 21st century. My other feeling was one of hope. I wanted to make sure that other folks had the same opportunities that Joaquin and I had had. I felt very blessed by the chance to go to the public schools here and then have the opportunity to go to college and then on to law school. And I knew that for myself, I wouldn't be happy billing hours just in a corporate law firm. I needed something that would be contributing to the success of other people. And so it's with that sense of purpose that I went into public service. I have to say, though, that these days it is tough to find a sense of hope or optimism in our civic discourse. In fact, to watch the events of the last year is to risk giving yourself a depression. The Old Testament in Ecclesiastes teaches us that to everything there is a season and a time for every purpose under the heavens. And what a season it's been. It has, in a very real way, been a season of doubt. The public trust in the very foundations of our democratic process has been rattled. Trust in the integrity of the vote, in the information that one gets from media, in the trustworthiness of candidates, and even in the institutions of representation. The public opinion is, in some cases, at all-time lows. It's also been a season of hate. During the campaign that we just witnessed, undocumented immigrants were scapegoated. Subtle and not so subtle appeals were made 
to stir racial animus, anti-Semitism, and anti-Islamicism. And since the election, more than 700 incidents of hate crimes have been reported across the United States. It's been a season of fear. In the time since the election, the president-elect has spoken of immediately deporting two to three million undocumented immigrants with a criminal record, even though there aren't that many with a criminal record living in the United States. His soon-to-be chief of staff has said the administration won't take off the table the creation of a registry for Muslims. One advisor to the president-elect has cited the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II as potential precedent for policy going forward. It is as well, in many ways, a season of disunity, a time when too many Americans see their neighbors as suspect, as the reason for their problems, or even worse, as a reason for declining United States, as lesser than themselves. A time of polarization, a time when people are not just fighting party to party, but also one racial group to another, one religion to another. It has been, in a very real way, a time when we're faced with deeper than usual questions. Usually the arguments that we get into are about how much money we should spend here or there. Whether the federal government or the state government has more authority or should have more authority over our lives. Whether it's best to go forward in policy incrementally or to do so more boldly. What's the best timing? Who are the best people to do it? It has been clear during this season that there's something more fundamental that we need to ask ourselves in the face of what we've seen. One important answer to that is faith. Five years ago, I had the opportunity to visit Israel. During my visit, I had the chance to sit down with then-President Shimon Peres. During our conversation, President Perez said that every morning we look into a mirror to gauge our physical appearance, how good we look, and then we make adjustments to that physical appearance to make sure that we're at our best. And then he asked, what is it that can serve as a mirror for our soul? How do we gauge what kind of people we are? And just as importantly, how do we make adjustments? How do we get better? Our faith can and does serve as one mirror. Just about every religion, old or new, Western or Eastern, teaches at its essence compassion and love for others, honesty, integrity, sacrifice. My hope is that in the years to come, 
we will embrace these values more than ever. The Bible speaks not only of a time to hate, but also a time to love. Not only a time to rend, but also of a time to sow. It teaches of a time to keep silent, but also of a time to speak. And so it is that this is a time to speak, whatever one's profession. The public servants will, also, will always talk too much. But what I hope that you will do is I hope that you will use your voice and your wisdom to ensure that we embrace the path of light to help each other remember the God-given potential in every human being. A few weeks ago, I read an article out of Dallas-Fort Worth. It was about a young man who's 17 years old, and he was in the news because he received a perfect score on his AP computer science exam. He was one of only about 10 people in the world this year to get a perfect score. I don't know about you, but if I took that test, I'd probably get a one or a two. He got a perfect score. To me, it was one more reminder that talent and intelligence and ability comes in every person, regardless of their race or whether they're a man or a woman, whether they're male or, whether they're male or female, rich or poor, whatever their religion. I've seen that in my own life. I've been to the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation and seen young people living in a two-bedroom home with 18 folks living there, including two families in the basement. I've seen veterans who are homeless searching for a new start in life. I've seen in my own family, my grandmother, who did not get a formal education, but was able eventually to provide for her own daughter and see her daughter reach the American dream of getting a college education, getting a good job, and watch as her grandsons got into college and then one day would eventually become mayor and congressman of their community. And I'm sure that if we went around this room, that we see that story in family after family. We see stories that appeal to our sense of confidence in the goodness of individuals, that appeal to our sense of compassion and what is possible when we believe in others. And so, we know as well that religion is not now and has never been about the status quo. It is about getting better, despite our flaws. Your voice is important in helping us improve ourselves and helping us perfect our union. And so it's fitting that we gather here in San Antonio, a city named for a saint. I grew up Catholic, although I have to confess, never as the most devout Catholic on the block. 
My grandmother, like many devout Catholics, would pray to St. Anthony. She would pray to St. Anthony to help her find something that she needed. My brother Joaquin and I shared a room with her growing up. We would sleep on bunk beds on one side of the room, and she slept on a day bed on the other. And sometimes at night, I remember hearing her whisper her prayers to St. Anthony. She would pray for wisdom. She'd pray to find the right answers in life. She'd pray for strength. I even remember her praying for to find a hairbrush that she had lost the day before. In these days, and in the years to come, I hope that you will find the courage to continue speaking up for what's right, the wisdom to help show us the way. And I pray that our nation will have the vision to continue to move toward one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. What's at stake is not only whether we're a country that comes together or comes apart, or the future of young men or young women like that student who got a perfect score on his AP exam. What's at stake is whether we will define ourselves in this 21st century as a nation that continues to appeal and to live up to what is best in human beings. You study doctrine that goes back centuries. In that time and in those writings is the wisdom for all of us. My hope for you is that you will find the strength to have a voice, to continue to speak up for what is right in your scholarship, in your advocacy, and I hope that we will all find the love and the compassion to make it so in the years to come. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And uh, I'd be glad to take questions that folks have. There's, mi there's microphones in the middle and one over here as well. Hi, Secretary Castro, Castro, excuse me. My name is Carolyn Davis. Uh, I grew up here in San Antonio. I'm a proud 99 Churchill High School graduate. And I'm um, so grateful, I just wanted to say, for the work you've done to develop this city. Um, it's been a tremendous thing to come back and see how different it is. I live now in Washington, D.C. as well. I work with the Center for Public Theology at Wesley <laughs> Theological Seminary. We're a new program. One of the things we're doing is looking to get seminarians and church leaders trained in how to have difficult conversations with their congregations, um, it, to lead towards advocacy perhaps, but, but more so to model a new kind of way of living with one another. And one of the things we're finding very quickly is how uh, uninformed many of our folks are about really how government functions and what is the right role um, and the right approach to the everyday person who's got a lot on their plate um, to have towards thinking about our institutions. 
I'm curious, I've been asking a lot of leaders that I come in contact with, what would you want them to know um, about what they need to be thinking about as they think about government in this context, but, but perhaps more broadly in and, and you're talking about what would I want, who was the audience again, remind uh, me? Faith leaders, clergy, sure. people of faith, looking to think about the challenging issues of the day, um, but uh, perhaps with a starting point that is um, less civically educated than we might have used to be. Well, you know, the number one thing that I uh, wish people would keep in mind is that um, even where we have, you know, an impulse to have a strong separation between church and state, and, you know, that ebbs and flows in community to community and, you know, in different times, um, I have not yet met a public servant who was not willing to engage or did not want to engage faith leaders in some way to solve problems. Mm. There is a strong recognition among, I think, every public servant that I have met that the faith community plays a, a fundamental role in trying to help us tackle our biggest challenges. You know, I started at the local level, and I think at the local level you can see that probably the most. Mm -hmm. Um, because you're representing people in neighborhoods with challenges that are right in front of them that may go to their local parish or, you know, uh, they worship in that, in that neighborhood. And the church is oftentimes uh, a place where people congregate not just for worship but also for neighborhood meetings, to vote. You know, there is a strong sense among public servants, I think, that, you know, even the ones that see that separation that the church, churches or religion has a strong role to play in helping things get better. Mm -hmm. and, and the other part is that, you know, I think then you have to figure out, okay, you gotta navigate what is the best way to do that. Mm -hmm. But I guess the lesson of that is that um, even if the welcome mat does not seem like it's all the way out sometimes, uh, my experience has been that it actually is. Mm -hmm. And my hope, my advice for them would be to engage, mm -hmm. to take the initiative. Um, to not wait for folks in government to, to reach out. Because I think what they'll find is when they do take that initiative, uh, that they'll be more welcome than they thought. Thank you. Yeah. Secretary Castro, uh, my name is Sean Landris, and in a sort of world collide moment, I'm, my training's in religious studies, but I serve as a a county commissioner in Los Angeles uh, chairing the Productivity Investment Board, and I chair the Social Services Commission in the city of Santa Monica. So I have a question. I know you're not here in wearing your HUD secretary hat, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, what do you think that HUD can do in the next 60 days to protect the advances that you've made over the past number of years and the administration has made, particularly with respect to the most vulnerable Americans uh, to whom you referred in your speech. And bearing in mind that people here are from all over the country. We all live in communities, we all live somewhere, um, and HUD reaches everywhere. What can we do uh, after January 20th as individuals, whether as faculty members or as citizens and residents, um, to help sustain those protections and um, keep, keep our country moving forward. Yeah, so uh, yeah, I'm not gonna get too much in it because I do have to be careful. We have to separate you know, what's official and what's not. We have these Byzantine rules in the federal government, <laughs> trust me. Um, I would just say in general that um, 
you know, making clear what the need is because that need is not going away. And there are powerful voices in this room and in so many others that can help make that need very clear. And so whatever else happens, sticking to the advocacy and uh, providing the information and making that need clear is probably the best path that people can take. And don't get discouraged um, because Sometimes even when it seems like folks are not hearing you and uh, you know that they're, they're, they have a tin ear or they're deaf, uh, there are still people that are and they can make a difference within that system. Thank you. Yeah. Hello, Secretary Castro. Hello. Uh, uh, Dan Ramirez, I'm a professor at Claremont Graduate University. Uh, this is going to be a very personal question. Um, you don't remember this, but I was there that day uh, when your mother delivered you to Casa Zapata on mm -hmm. the Stanford campus uh, into the uh, competent hands of my boss, Cecilia Bursiaga, her comadre. Uh, and I've just watched you from afar, and I'm very proud of what I've, I've seen. Here's my question. Given the, to the toxicity uh, that our youngsters have breathed in, over the last year and a half, especially I'm talking about dreamers and their siblings. How can we um, inoculate them, empower them as you were empowered as an 18 year old uh, to take life by the horns? Um, what's it gonna take uh, in terms of a, just a broad mentoring of this vulnerable young population that has been told it doesn't belong here or its family doesn't belong here. Yeah, I guess I would, I would first of all, it's good to see you. Uh, it's almost been 25 years since uh, Joaquin and I started at Stanford. I, I would separate that into two parts. Number one, there are certain things that need to happen immediately on behalf of the dreamers. <clears throat> and the things that need to happen immediately are that their stories need to get out there again. Mm -hmm. The strongest protection that they have is public opinion at this point. Remember, this is an executive order that uh, DACA that is standing in between the deportability of these young folks and, and them having peace of mind that they're not going to be deported. And uh, that could change on, at 12.01 p.m. on January 20th. And so, uh, you know, somebody said to me recently that, that probably the biggest urgent need is to get those stories out there, and I agree. Uh, so my hope is that, that the organizations, United We Dream and others that have been active, as well as folks who are supportive in other organizations, regardless of whether they're Latino organizations or, or, or not, or Asian American organizations, which I know have been active, that they will be supportive of that effort to get that public opinion, I think, where, where it ought to be, because it's based on compassion. Um, the second is, I think, to go more directly to your question, like, okay, you know, how do you round out uh, our support for them so that they're able to achieve as much as possible? Um, you know, I, I think that uh, I've been glad to see more um, scholarship organizations, more nonprofits, uh, even more state organizations in some cases willing to reach their hands out and to include 
these dreamers as folks who can get scholarships or some other opportunity. Uh, my hope is that in literature, that their experience and on, on film, you know, either through documentaries or TV, that all of that will be reflected more than it has been so far. Um, I also hope that uh, at a state level, that in colleges and universities, there will be more done to provide them a sense of security and the opportunity to excel. Um, so I think it's just uh, a continued push to provide all of the supports that, that so many of us take for granted for ourselves or for our children to make sure that, that those dreamers feel that sense of, of hope and of security instead of an instability and you know, a sense sometimes of, well, why should I do that when things could change tomorrow? Oh, sorry, let me go over here, because I think she was there first. Thank you. Um, I'm Helen Borsier. I was a, uh, ordained at First Presbyterian Church on the other side of the Alamo. And now I am a volunteer chaplain serving inside the Immigrant Family Detention Center at Carn City. I'll go there on Wednesday. It will be my first time there since the election. And I wonder what your word of hope would be for these immigrant women and children seeking asylum in this time and place right now. Well, uh, number one, um, to know that there are a whole bunch of folks in places that are obvious and, and also non-obvious places that are trying to help them. Um, and that uh, as much insecurity and uncertainty as there is right now, I also believe that there is a wellspring of love and of support for them. Uh, and that I think that uh, if we've seen anything We've seen that, you know, that we can go in the right direction with regard to these families. Um, and the last few years, I think, have shown some progress. My hope is that that doesn't slide back, although I think you know, that's going to be a tough fight. But the best thing that we can do is to raise our voices um, in support and fight like crazy to make sure that they're protected. And so I would tell them to you know, believe in the strength of the love and the compassion that people have who are fighting for them. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, Hector Avos from Ames, Iowa, a professor of religious studies at Iowa State. I wonder if you can give us a sense of uh, the power of the Latino vote in future elections. Uh, we were led to believe that the Latino vote would carry Florida for Clinton, and that didn't happen. So could you give us a, your sense of where the Latino vote would be in the next cycle? My understanding, although I know that the in-depth analyses have not been done yet because the election was just two weeks ago, but <clears throat> my understanding is that Latino turnout was higher uh, in 2016 than it was in 2012 and 2008. Uh, I understand that it went up by at least one percentage point as a share of the overall vote, but that that was not enough to carry the day uh, in places like Florida and a few other states. I think it did make a difference in places like Nevada. It made Texas closer. It made Arizona closer. Uh, it kept New Mexico in the Democratic column. Um, obviously, in California, California became even more blue than it had been before. Uh, so it's making a difference, but the numbers are not there yet. 
What I'm interested in seeing is what the turnout rate was. So in 2012, the turnout rate for, for African Americans was about 66%. And for non-Hispanic whites, it was about 64, 65%. For, uh, for Latinos, it was 48%. And for Asian Americans, it was 47%. So the question is, where did, for Asian Americans and for, her, for Latinos that had supported Obama at 73% and 71% respectively, where did that turnout rate go? You can see that you have a lot of room to grow there, right? So um, if it got to 50-something percent, if it was higher, I think that that's a very, very good sign for the future. Uh, if it didn't go anywhere, then, then that's definitely a setback because you're right, there was a lot of expectation that it would. And if there was ever an election with a candidate where you would think that the Latino vote would come out, it was certainly the 2016 election. And if it didn't go anywhere, then I would agree that that's troublesome, very troublesome. Yeah. Hi, <clears throat> Hi my name is Linda Mercadante. I'm professor of theology at the Methodist Theological School in Ohio and an ordained Presbyterian minister. During World War II, we had two fronts. We were fighting on the uh, Pacific front and the European front. Um, we weren't fighting with Canada at our backs or Mexico in front of us. We had those two places to not worry about. I feel now we're in a war that is on all fronts. And it is very hard for us to know where to focus our energies. And I know you could say, well, do what you're best at or you know, what you care most about, but I don't think that's enough of an answer. No offense if that's what you were gonna give me, but I don't think that's enough of an answer mm -hmm. because we need to have a concerted effort and figure out what, what are the most critical issues, even prioritize them so we know where to focus our energies because we're all limited, finite people. So whether it would be the environment first or uh, the economy or what, you know, uh, racism, sexism, every, there's just so many issues. Most of, most of the people in this academy are uh, m more or less liberal, and there are issues that we've been f uh, working on forever in our entire careers. And now it's like they're all there in a circle, and I feel like we're, we're going to start spinning around and getting dizzy not knowing where to start. So uh, since you're in government, where do you think we should start? Where's the most critical place? <clears throat> well, I mean... Thanks for uh, taking away my general answer yeah, really, right. uh, no, no before problem. I could give it. No um, I mean, number one, let's start with, with the political reality that you're never going to have everybody on the liberal wing or any wing of, of politics all coalesced behind you know, one singular agenda with prioritized issues. First, we're going to take on this and then this. That's not going to happen. Now. Each of us has issues that we're passionate about, and I think that, that the challenge is to draw out that passion in people who share a sense of urgency on each of those issues. And the way that that gets, gets modulated, basically, is through what Congress is taking up, essentially, and what state governments are taking up across the United States. So for the federal government, uh, just you know, as an observer, you know, speaking in my personal capacity and talking about what I think is going to happen uh, in the months and years to come, I think civil liberties is going to be a huge challenge. 
this is a president-elect who has made it very clear that he has a different sense of civil liberty than I think a lot of us in this room. And there are vulnerable populations that, that are right in the target of the soon-to-be administration. And so unfortunately, it feels like we're going to be playing defense first on ensuring that people who are vulnerable, whether it's immigrants or it's, it's minorities of different types, whether religious or racial, are protected in the United States in the same way that they have been and that we, we hope they will be in the future. Um, uh, after that, I would say it's, it's issues like the environment um, because my belief is that you're going to have a very corporate-centered, uh, give everything away to the lobbyist kind of Congress and that they're not going to get much resistance from this president. As much as this president-elect ran on the idea that he was going to, quote, drain the swamp, that's, you know, especially with a Republican-controlled Congress, uh, they're going to revert to what they do. And what they do is they over-listen and work on behalf of lobbyists of every stripe from the corporate sector. And so I have no doubt when it comes to the environment that, that you're going to get all sorts of different uh, uh, regulations that are peeled back from the administrative end, the executive end, you're going to get in Congress legislation that chips away at the Environmental Protection Agency, that uh, chips away at, at long-standing statutes of environmental protection. So all of that is important, and we could go on and on. We're never going to coalesce behind you know, one common agenda. I think it's going to come as Congress brings it up, and unfortunately, we're, you know, if you're a Democrat, Democrats are not in control of that right now. So we just need to make sure that people are mobilized who are passionate on these issues and ready to take on each of them um, and educated well about these issues. I think that, that, uh, that there needs to be a lot of time spent on the ground in communities explaining, educating, informing, making it more than just about going to vote in November, but, but Getting, education, getting, getting issue education into neighborhoods so that, so that people better understand what's at stake and they can become advocates. People who, for right now, it's not even on their radar screen. Uh, that is my hope. Thank you. We, can have, we have one more. Okay. Yeah. Good afternoon, Secretary Castro. First, I want to say thank you for being here with us today and for your overall positive leadership, both locally and nationally. Uh, my question is, you know, in the recent history of America, there seems to be this growing sense of a silent tension between the Latino community and the black community in a sort of reaction to the power and privilege of whiteness in America. And so there's this sort of competition to be the choice minority in America. Um, what do you think is a proactive approach to first deconstruct this uh, negative relationship and construct a more unified alliance, first between, of course, the Latino community and the black community, and second, uh, an extension to all communities. Yeah, no, thanks for the question. Um, you know, I think, I think that probably the best thing to do is to look at those places where, at a community level, Sometimes those tensions have been overcome. And also look at leaders who have been able to bring coalitions together. 
You know, I think of Tom Bradley when he was mayor of Los Angeles or, or Sylvester Turner now in Houston. Uh, I think of, uh, of folks who have been able to address issues forthrightly and focus on our commonalities but not be afraid to talk about the differences and the different ways that folks experience America. Um, I think that President Obama has done that uh, at, at a national level about it as well as anybody could. Um, and so I, I see your point. I do think that, that from time to time there are those issues. Um, my, my sense, though, is that at least during this election season, you know, that, that there was a unifying force, and that unifying force was Donald Trump. Um, you know, but, but the question becomes, what good can be made of that? Because there's so many common battles that folks need to take on. Um, how do we encourage dialogue at the community level? When I was, uh, when my brother and I were in college, our mother was involved in uh, something called the uh, Black Latino Jewish Dialogue here in San Antonio that I know exists, um, you know, in some cities. And so we became involved. Uh, Joaquin and I became involved in it. It was really neat to hear different perspectives on issues. And the thing is that that kind of thing does not happen nearly enough. So how do you put that power into the hands of people who are living their lives? Um, the east side of San Antonio here is the only, maybe one of only two communities in the United States that has an institution that is both a historically black college and also a Hispanic-serving institution, which is St. Philip's College. And there was a time when it was the predominantly African-American um, part of town. And it, it still is, but also it's very Latino now, and it, there's a growing white population. You know, I think if you, can, if you can approach communities like that and get conversations going, I think that ultimately that's going to be more fruitful than trying to do it at a national level where it gets, you know, moderated through a whole bunch of different filters and, and it doesn't speak to the particular circumstance of people in their communities. As you know, that's very delicate work. That's not the kind of work that, that lends itself to messages from on high. It's very personal, face-to-face -face kind of work. And I think the best place to start are if we took you know, the 20 biggest cities in the United States and then started looking at the neighborhoods where people are living around each other, like the east side of San Antonio, and made a concerted effort to, to work on those relationships there with the community and, and, you know, facilitate that instead of speaking at them from on high. Thank you. I'm a doctoral student at Union Theological Seminary, mm -hmm. and these are some of the things that we, we wrestle with in a commitment to bringing... Yeah. Uh, academia, the community, and the spirituality of social justice. So uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Sure. So we do have two more people. Lined All right. Up maybe we'll them. take these two. Maybe yeah. we could get both questions. Yeah, get and sure, sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, so. uh, mine is going to be short. Um, I, you're not going to be Secretary of Housing and Urban Development <laughs> in come January. So what are your plans? <laughs> yeah, okay. Thank you for the question. How are you going to make change, et cetera? Yeah. 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 
Thank you so much, Secretary Julian um, Castro. My name is Lisa Sharon Harper. I'm at Sojourners in Washington, D.C. And I'm actually, I'm, uh, I think like a lot of other people, conflicted about the reality of voter suppression in this election and the outcome of it, and also what seems to be no concerted effort from government itself to address it. Um, and and it, there is a growing uh, cry on change.org uh, to actually have an audit of the election. I just wondered if you could talk to what are the mechanisms that we do have to begin to do an audit and, and is there any redress for any illegal activity or anything like that? Yeah, thanks for the question. I'll answer that and then the question about what's next. Um, well, I think one of the challenges is that <clears throat> these are state by state uh, you know, voting issues, because as y'all know, voting is administered state by state, not federally, and really county by county. Within a state, you'll have different ways, within the law, different ways that the voting process is administered. And so that makes it more difficult and also easier. More difficult because I don't believe that there is one national way to get at that. But it's easier in the sense that, uh, if there's a pattern of irregularity somewhere, then that can be identified and you can go to the source within that state of where the problem seems to be. Uh, you know, I know that there's, a, that there's a strong urge on the part of, of many folks to, to try and audit the election or see what the results were. I'm not sure uh, what the outcome of that is gonna be. Uh, frankly, uh, I don't, I don't know what the path legally to do that would be, whether there's something that goes along with the Electoral College. My understanding is that that kind of thing would have to be done state to state. There's the opportunity for requests for recounts, uh, an evaluation of the vote in different counties or at a state level, but I don't, I don't know of a solution that is a national solution other than going state by state. Um, then finally, let me just answer, um, first let me say thank you all to all of you um, thank you for your scholarship. Uh, thank you for your voice and your advocacy and for in, in the months and the years to come during what I think are going to be some very, very tough times for vulnerable communities, the communities that, that we care about. Uh, thank you for fighting the good fight and getting others invested in fighting the good fight. Uh, so I'm out of a job in um, 60 days. And uh, I'm gonna come back to San Antonio. Before I got into the administration, I was working on a book with Little Brown, the publisher. Um, I had to put that on hold because you can't do that and serve in the administration. And so uh, I'm gonna be finishing that book. It's due in the summer of 2017. And then also uh, speaking and, and uh, finding other ways to keep myself busy. Uh, so no grand plan for right now, except to say that I'm looking forward to being back in San Antonio because my family moved back here at the end of the summer. And so Erica and I have a seven-year-old girl, Karina, and a son who is about to turn two, Christian, uh, and I'm gonna get to spend a lot more time with them than I was before. So I'm looking forward to, to getting back to Texas. Uh, and I do think that, um, that the next few years, uh, are going to challenge a lot of the notions that we have of who we are as a nation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's gonna mean that you know, everybody from elected officials to scholars to private citizens 
have a strong role to play in raising a voice for us to head in the right direction. Uh, thank you for having me here. I hope that you'll continue to raise that voice and with your scholarship, and I'll do it as a private citizen. Thank you.